Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. We love to hear from you, so please feel free to leave us a rating or a review. Our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Hazel Gaynor, an award-winning novelist who writes historical fiction. Her debut work appeared just four years ago, and since then, she's written another five books, all novels inspired by true events over the years, such as The Sinking of the Titanic and The Bright Lights of 1920s London. Her latest book is called The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, which moves between two very different eras, 1838 and 1938. Hazel, your niche is very much historical fiction. Why were you drawn to this genre? I think originally most of my books have started from ideas and and events that I was fascinated with as a child. So I have to credit my school history teachers for really, I suppose, nurturing that interest in these what we might think of as quite distant events, but I write within the last 100 years generally. Um, So it really isn't that far away. Um, And I think those stories and those events have really stayed with me. And, and, And as a novelist, obviously, you're then looking for ideas and things that will translate into relatable stories for people to really become immersed in. And was your history teacher really creative in the way that they taught you? I think they must have been. I took history to A-level, so I took it all the way through. And I remember, you know, in primary school learning about the ancient Romans and I really loved all of that. And I loved always going to museums. We used to go on lots of school trips and look at Roman ruins and things like that. So I sound incredibly geeky, but (laughs) actually I, I think it's a really rich source of story. You know, some of the events that happened life-changing, world-changing events are what happened in history. And it's a, it's a fabulous jump-off point for a historical novel. Because that's what I was going to ask you. Again, it's called historical fiction, mm. but what I was intrigued by is, did the history bit come first? Did that inspire you? Or was it the fiction that came first? Well, I've always been a voracious reader. I've always loved books um, ever since I was a small girl, you know, always going to the library, always had a book in my hand. So story has always been there. I've always loved English literature. Um, But the two together, I think, have really brought me to this point um, as a writer and I'm able to bring the two, the elements of fact. So my stories are always based around actual known historic fact. What I love about historical fiction is I can then Um, weave my own tapestry of imagined characters around that. So, for example, in The Girl Who Came Home, I created fictional characters who were on Titanic and we follow the known events of Titanic. In The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, the story is based around Grace Darling, who was a true Victorian heroine who lived in a lighthouse. But I've put other people in her world. Um, Some of that developed from suggested hints of romances in her life, etc. So it's, it's fantastic. You can take what you know and then let your imagination run wild, which is fabulous as a writer. And we'll chat about it later on in terms of how to really get ingrained into that writing of historical times. But let's go back a little bit, first of all. And when did the writing actually begin? 
Well, probably when I was eight. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a while I, ago. I wrote it. Could have been a bestseller, The Pony Thieves. <laughs> I'm sure it was in my dad's attic somewhere. I just, I think I always loved story, but I, you know, I didn't grow up with anybody in the family who was in any way connected with um, books or writing. I mean, you, you don't really think about the people who write the books. You just read books and you, and you think stories. about the story. Absolutely. You, you loved the characters. Um, interestingly, I took a trip to Haworth Parsonage where the Bronte sisters lived. And I think it was going there and that, you know, being from Yorkshire myself and these Yorkshire women, um, I think that opened my eyes to, oh, the writers of the books are actually really interesting. But I knew nobody. So that, you know, this isn't a career I ever thought was a possibility or anything I could do. It's a second career for me, you know, midlife crisis, one might call it. And what was your first <laughs> career then? Very much in an office, um, training and development, human resources, totally so, corporate environment. And um, while you were doing that then, was the writing always in the back of your head? Not always. I think, you know, reading was always there. Um, but again... I think my my degree studies was business studies. I just went down that very corporate path and I I had a fabulous time. I worked in London, I worked in Sydney, um, came over to Dublin and worked here for a law firm. Um, But that creative urge never went away. Um, And whenever there was anything to be written in work, it was always give it to Hazel. You know, she'll do the newsletter. She'll do that communication. Um, And it was actually when I had my children and I think it was just one of those life-changing things. Um, And I started to write a blog about parenting and all the chaos and madness that goes with that. And that was what sort of opened up this creative portal. And and from there, it was it was no stopping me. So did you sit down purposely one day and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write a book? Yes and no. I mean, it was the idea to write a book was there, but I just didn't know how to go about it. I didn't, as I said, I didn't know anybody in the did industry. Did you have an idea though, a plot? I did have an idea. I had several ideas. Um, and Titanic was actually one of the one of the first ideas. But again, you know, how on earth do you get that massive story out of your head and, and actually onto the page? So I started to go to writers events um, run by Vanessa O'Loughlin at, at um, Inkwell, as it was then, um, and started to maybe think I could do this you know there are other people here who are it's almost like you know admitting I want to be a writer is a really crazy thing to say and it is quite daunting as you said getting the story out of your head and down onto the page so you just took it bit by bit I assume yes and I mean this was being done you know when else would you start to write a book than when you've got two toddlers of course running around your feet perfect timing timing, Hazel but it's just that who knows when's the right time and it just to me as I say something about writing a blog had given me that permission almost to think well you can write you do have a voice you do it also have gave you a structure say. probably and, and yes. the discipline discipline and literally sitting at my kitchen table you know a lot of aspiring writers would say that you know I don't have a space to write I don't have time to write I had neither um, you know I literally you had a kitchen it. table and a, and a laptop and I would be stirring the dinner and then typing up another paragraph. So it was, I modelled my way through, um, but there was always that determination and self-belief that I could do it. And at what point did you realise that, okay, this is working, there is definitely something here, there is a book here, what do I do next? I think when the story began to take shape with the girl who came home, and I had actually written another novel, which is my under the under the bed novel, which I think every writer has their learning book. You know that learning to have that discipline to sit down and write, and you don't know if anyone's ever going to read it other than your husband and the cat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a part of the process. So when I got into writing the girl who came home, and it terrified me. You know, trying to translate this really well known event 
into my interpretation. But I really, I just loved writing that book. I wrote it quite quickly. It took me about six months to write what I now know was a first draft, but I didn't realise was a first draft. Yeah, so I thought I'd finished. And then obviously now I know that was me getting the story down. And then there was a process of editing. Um, But that really excited me. I just, I felt so passionate about it. And I wanted other people to know this story I'd discovered of this group of Irish um, friends and family who travelled together as a group of 14 and what happened to them. Um, And I think that was it. It was the fire in my belly of, it wasn't just this sort of um, hobby of writing a book. I really believed that I'd written a good story and I wanted people to read it. And how did you go about the publishing aspect? So I very, again, tentatively sort of started dipping my toe in the water. People like Vanessa were very helpful. Um, I'd met, um, who's now a dear friend of mine, um, Catherine Ryan Howard. She'd self-published a book of her own. So I talked to her about what she had done. I started to approach agents, got the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is an enormous book, which is quite overwhelming. The Bible. The Bible, um, and is now propping up a door somewhere. Um, So it was really just a matter of... um, you know, sort of modelling my way through and, and going to people's book launches and just sort of pushing yourself to get involved in the industry and, and see how to do it. So networking was a huge aspect of it. I think so, yeah. I mean, it was, I think it's part of that believing in yourself. You know, if you go to somebody else's book launch um, and can see what they're doing and you want to do the same, Um, And I often, you know, newer writers, I always say, go to book launches, go to literary festivals, listen to what people have to say. I used to feel like an absolute fraud and still do. You know, the imposter syndrome is very, very real, six books in. Um, But I think the more you go to those events and you realise, okay, I'm not I'm not mad. You know, lots of other people want to write a book as well. It gives you belief Um, in yourself. Absolutely. You know, and it's that energy that you get when you surround yourself with like minded people is, you know, um, it's, it's fantastic. So how did the first publishing deal happen? So in a very roundabout way, I've gone around publishing all sorts of ways. I approached um, an agent. The book was submitted to several publishers, a Titanic book. People were already thinking, okay, the story's been told, but the writing was considered to be great. So I got mixed feedback and I decided in the end to take the decision to self-publish The Girl Who Came Home, encouraged by the agent I was working with at the time. Um, And it just took off. It did really just phenomenally well. It was on um, as a Kindle ebook only. And did well where now, in Europe or in the States or? Everywhere, Um, mostly in the States, actually. Um, The book was released on Kindle at the time of the centenary of the sinking of Titanic. So I do think that obviously had an awful lot to do with it. Serendipity. Serendipity, absolutely. And from there, when people are starting to read your book, um, unbeknown to me, agents and other people in the industry were also reading the book. Um, I'd started to write my second book, which became A Memory of Violets. Um, that book got rejected. I had dozens of rejections. So despite having really? a best-selling Kindle ebook, um, which I thought, you know, guaranteed success now, the second book to go into traditional publishers, I still... And how did that feel? Awful. And heartbreaking. It, and impacted yeah. on your confidence, I Hugely. think. Hugely. I mean, I was going to stop and give up so many times, I can't tell you. It's it's a difficult process, you know, that frustration of thinking, well, people are enjoying what I've written and now I've written something else. So surely, um, but and it's not that easy. And what reasons were you getting for that? Mixture. Um, already had something similar to this book on their list. Um, had another writer who was you know, working on something like that. All of the feedback, however, was very encouraging and positive about 
the story and the writing. So I took a lot from that. Um, and I kept working and, you know, ups and downs and wondering if it would ever happen. The dream, I suppose, was to work with a, a big publishing house and have physical books in the bookshop. In the bookshop. that's how I love to read. Um, and one of the books was then, The Girl Who Came Home was read by an agent in New York who contacted me one day and said this is fabulous. Have you written anything else? Do you have an agent? Yes. 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 All of the, I was in my pyjamas, <laughs> literally at the kitchen table. The kids were going off to school. Nobody had brushed their teeth. Um, and I literally, I remember standing up saying, everybody stop. Something exciting's <laughs> happened. Um, you know, I, I, I really believe that because if you keep going and keep trying, despite the knockback, despite the rejections, the harder you work, the more luck that's will it. come back to they you. They do say it's the combination you know, of the hard work and, and the look. So which book ended up on the shelves first then in printed format? So in printed format, The Girl Who Came Home. So the book was sold to HarperCollins in New York um, as part of a two book deal with A Memory of Violet. So the two books were taken on, which was amazing. Um, and it was decided that The Girl Who Came Home would be published first in uh, 2014. And then A Memory of Violets came out the following year. Um, and they were published globally. So from tears and frustration and despair amongst suddenly. the breakfast dishes, <laughs> suddenly, you know, I always say you just don't know when that yes is going to come. If you give up, that's it. It's just gone. Keep at it. Keep at it. Absolutely. And I now can see the benefit of going through that process of, if you want to call it failure or rejection or feedback, whatever word you want to use. It really makes you realise how determined you are. Um, and it's it's all valid. You know, it's all part of the process. And it helps you appreciate the good times. It really does. I mean, jeepers. When, <laughs> when that email came through, didn't matter about all the no's. Didn't matter <laughs> exactly. about, the, you know, they're kind of tagged up as a you know, banner of honour now. And what's really interesting is it is all your books are set in historical times. So... You know, let's chat about that that process, I suppose, because in my head, I would feel that it would take longer to write a historical fiction novel because the research has to be meticulous, mm. especially if you're writing about a particular era and the context has to be right. Yeah. Is that the case or did it just come more naturally to you? No, I mean, research is a, a huge part of writing a historical novel. But actually, you know, having talked since to, to friends who write all sorts of genres, there's all sorts of research involved in every sort of novel, be it crime, be it uplit, um, you know, whatever. My friend Carmel Harrington has just written a novel and based on the homeless situation um, crisis. And, you know, huge amounts of research has gone into that, for example. But the only thing about your books are they are set in a particular era. So you do have to be faithful to that era to an extent and yes. lifetime historical events. Yeah. And I have to admit, I adore the research. You know, put me in a dusty archive room with hundred year old documents oh, you're a and nerd. letters and I'm a complete nerd. <laughs> Um, it's fascinating. And, and actually, that sort of process of peeling back the layers and, you know, you start with an event like Titanic or you start with somebody like Grace Darling and then you start to dig and you unco uncover the most amazing details about these people who may have been lost to history or, or, or to, to time in a way. But there are stories I find are really relevant and it's that process of research. Yes, I have to be historically authentic. You want to evoke that time, that era in the language, the clothing, the transport, the pe food people ate. Um, and I absolutely adore writing that and I love reading that as well. So there definitely is a process of 
of research that then weaves its way into the writing. And interestingly, with the dialogue, so whatever about the setting and clothes, and you can probably have a lot of historical books that can tell you about that, mm. but the dialogue, we, we how people spoke, we mm. don't have an awful lot of audio recordings or visual recordings from yeah. the times that you were dealing with, the 1800s and, and some of the early 1900s. Yeah. So how difficult was that to make sure you were being authentic? Yeah, and I think a lot of sort of primary source material, so letters, correspondence from the time is, is a fabulous source. Of, of research, newspapers. Um, you know, there is a lot of a sort of old Pathé newsreel footage which can give you a fabulous sense of how people spoke at the time. I try to be quite careful in not being, I suppose, too archaic and clunky. You know, I want these people, even if they were alive 200 years ago, I want them to feel present and real to the reader now. So I often say to people who don't read much historical fiction, you know, don't worry, it's not all Shakespearean forsooth and all this kind of language coming through. I try and, and let the, the, the characters speak very much as we would, but obviously just in terms of um, items that they're discussing um, or some of the conventions of language at the time, you do have to be faithful to without making it too dry. But um, you know. on that as well, what's also important is the plot and the story. So what, no matter what era it's based in, you need to make sure that that's interesting and keeps the reader reading. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is this is where, as a historical novelist, I have to be um, very careful about not falling down a, a rabbit, hole, rabbit hole of research and you suddenly spend all of your time in this historical period. Ultimately, you're telling a story and your story has to engage, captivate. Your characters have to be relatable, even if they're walking around, you know, in Victorian dress. I firmly believe that story... And, you know, your plot is is everything. It doesn't matter what era your book is set in, whether it's today in Dublin or the Victorian era in, in the UK. And what you love doing in your books as well is crossing timelines yes. so that part of the story will be set in one era yeah. and another part of the story could be about 100 years later. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, in The Girl from the Savoy, that was 1923, but A Memory of Violets was 1876 and 1912. Yes. And The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter... 1838 and 1938. Yes. So why why do that? Just to make life difficult. For myself. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, why not? Um, yeah, it's interesting, this, this idea of um, dual narrative. So what I'm really interested in um, as a storyteller is sort of the historical legacy of things. So you take the idea of a, a photograph or a letter um, or a diary and how that passes down through generations and how somebody you know, 100 years in the future from that could discover that and what that might mean to them if that was written by a family member or a photograph of family members. So I'm really interested in the threads that connect generations. And that's why often the way I tell my stories is that slow reveal of why was this person important to the other character in a different time period. And that generational connection and how the past can shape the present absolutely yeah and how somebody you know my a lot of my characters are very strong independent women who I suppose pushing the boundaries of what society would have expected of them at the time um, so they come from all sorts of you know working class backgrounds and obviously with Grace Darling and with her um, co-character in the later period of time is also involved in a lighthouse. And it's how those historical um, events have shaped who they are. And I see that in my own family. You know, I think if we all look back and 
I love that program. Who do you think you are? (laughs) I'd love to do it one day if anyone's listening. Um, I think understanding where we've come from is hugely important and I think it's a it's a great place to start with a story. Totally agree and actually couldn't agree more because when I uh, moved into my house in Dublin actually it was only shortly afterwards I realised my father told me that my grandmother and great grandparents had actually lived at the bottom of my road oh, I didn't, wow. and I didn't know that at the time I knew where he was from in Dublin yeah. but I didn't realise there was a connection and I was just going wow I wonder was that something just drawing you back or just something really weird yeah. and that we were literally metres away from each other so as a result then you do and I did become very interested and have been in the history of the area and what it was like in their day when they were growing up whenever that was 100, 150 years ago fascinating and you know I think that connection back to our grandparents great grandparents I was given a pack of letters recently from my dad which were written by my great grandmother to her son who went missing in World War II and they're incredibly poignant They're they're such an amazing record of my family and how this woman as a mother was feeling in the middle of a war in this tiny little town in Yorkshire. It's amazing. And interesting that you say a record because the written word was so important then yes. and it's less so now. And I do wonder in 100 years time, 200 years time, what, what will we be looking back yeah. at? Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 140 characters, little, you know, versions of our lives. So as well as writing on your own, you've also co-written books. Um, the first one was The Last Christmas in Paris. with your writer Heather Webb. How did that collaboration come about? Yeah, so Heather and I met um, through, we have the same agent um, in New York and and Michelle recognised two history geeks, to be perfectly honest, and said, I think you two will really hit it off. Um, We worked together on a collection of short stories about the Armistice Day of the First World War and we enjoyed it and uh, we both are crazy fools and just obviously want to add more work to our (laughs) schedule and we started to talk about this idea coming from those letters actually that I've just mentioned that were written in the war of um, two people separated over the four years of the First World War and we said should we just write this together so it's a book it's an epistolary novel written in letters she was um, one character I was the other and we literally wrote letters back and forth to each other Wow. Um, she's based in Connecticut in New England. And did you then review each other's work or how did how did you work it? Yeah, so we I suppose wrote the first draft by just spontaneously almost you know as our characters replying to the other person and doing research a foundation of research about the war at the same time. Um and then we went through a, a revision and, and rewriting process together using Google Docs. Um and it was kind of fabulous because with the time difference I would go to bed and have written my words and I'd wake up the next morning and Heather's reply from her character Tom to Evie would be waiting for me so it was almost like this real time you'd wake up going I wonder if Tom wrote back to me (laughs) Um, so it was very organic it was um, a risk in in some ways you know we could have come across all sorts because you have to leave your ego at the door you've got to be really honest with each other you've got to be prepared to take somebody else's opinion into account Um, and when writing another book together Inspired that's, by the wedding of Grace Kelly. Yeah, and that's yeah. out next year, which is great. Next so obviously summer. the collaboration is working. It's worked so well. We're actually, because we're both writing new um, solo books as well. And we haven't been in touch for a week. And we literally emailed each other the other day saying, I really miss you. <laughs> Can't wait to get back to our characters. And were there any rows when you were trying to write? Not at all. No, really? genuinely. We've, um, we, I think we just, we, we would never have gone into that relationship if we had thought there might be some clash of, as I say, it's not so much about the writing, it's, it's ego, it's personality and both perfectly happy to share the floor at events I went on tour with Heather in the States last year um, and we just had a great great time you know writing can be 
lonely at times and it's actually lovely to have that person who we actually support each other's own projects now as well and give feedback. And one of the questions I was going to ask in terms of your own writing as well, do you plot or do you go with the flow? Go with the flow. Really? Yeah. And it was the same maybe with Heather as well, wasn't it? Yeah, she's a little bit more of a plotter than me. Um, And I do sometimes wish I was more of a plotter than a pantser, as we say. But I I just can't do it. I've tried. Um, You know, I'll always have... An, a shape, a rough shape to the story. So I'll know where my characters are going and ultimately what's going to happen in the end. But I don't know. It's like I have a map and I'm not sure which route I'm going to take. For me, it works because I, I get to the writing desk every day and, and I'm, I am I feel I'm, I'm reading the story as I'm writing it. So I'm excited. Um, I've tried plotting meticulously and it feels like homework. We don't want that. I've got to write that scene. Um and it's interesting because, you know, again, I say to a lot, lots of new writers, there are no rules, really. You need to um, make up your you own. You find your way. You find what works for you around your life, around the way you like to write. You've got to enjoy it. If you're turning up at the desk every day going, oh, not this again. I mean, there are days when that happens. Of course, there are in every job. But don't be beholden to plotting just because it worked for somebody else. If that doesn't work for you, don't plot. You know, and do you it. ever run out of steam? I never run out of ideas, um, of course, You've the whole I of history to pull yeah. from. I know, exactly. you don't. <laughs> and it's terrible because I always get to this stage of about thirty to forty thousand words with the first draft, and I think every writer does this. You start to lose confidence in yourself, and you think, "Is this? Am I writing the story that was in my head?" And that's when other ideas start flirting with me. And you've, I've just trained myself to ignore them, Until and then this you're one excited to get to them. Exactly. So, again, a lot of writers I talk to, I say, you know, just commit to the idea. Don't. Don't worry, you will doubt yourself. You will want to give up because the other idea seems so much easier and better. And more exciting. But you'll get to the same point in that one. And you mentioned earlier that it took you six months to write the first draft of your first book. So how long does it take now? It would take me about nine months if I I include my research in that, my initial research, which might involve travelling and going off to museums and all that kind of stuff. So I try and Sounds build... terrible, I know, it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love and it. Would, but yeah, that would, would be that be a fairly clean draft now or would there still be a good bit of rewriting involved? There's always a lot of rewriting involved, but I do tend to produce quite polished first draft, so I wouldn't have lots of insert stuff here. You know, I, I write the full story, um, but then writing really is rewriting. So that first draft is just telling yourself the story, getting it out of your head. And then you take a step back, go back in. And that's when you really add the layers and the you restructure and you see the heart of what it is actually that you're trying to say. So I love the process of rewriting. And you also believe in having a writing buddy. Yes, that work because apparently yourself, Carmel Harrington and Catherine Ryan Howard, the trio, we yeah. will call you. <laughs> and we've had the pleasure of interviewing the other two. Um, but you you have a long relationship going back and you actually support each other in your writing. Absolutely. And, you know, we met when we were all sort of aspiring writers who just didn't really know what to do about it. We met at a writing event. Um, we all write in different genres. But we have kept in touch. And I think, as I mentioned, you know, writing can, it can feel like a lonely process. But actually, when you connect with other writers, you're all in the same situation. You're all trying to achieve the same end results. Um, and we've just followed each other's progress. Carmel's actually, um, she's published by Collins as well. Funnily, we all self-published originally and then have moved to traditional Very publishers. similar stories. Very spookily similar stories, some might say. We all like gin and tonic, which is obviously <laughs> very important. I think that was the final binding thing between us. Um, 
And we just sat down one day and we, we started to talk about what would have helped us when we were starting out, um, being completely green and naive. So we set up the Inspiration Project, which is really exciting. We we just love doing it. It's to connect creative workshops, creative workshops, writing retreats, um, which we want to bring people to to help them overcome some of those hurdles to understand the business um, as well as understand the craft of writing and to share some of the hints and tips that we've developed we've written we were counting the other day 16 novels between us so we we have a bit of experience to share I think you're allowed to share (laughs) at this point exactly yeah and just before you go have you ever tried any other genres besides historical fiction Apart from the first Under the Bed book, um, which I suppose would have been, in terms of genre, called women's fiction. Um, no, I haven't. Um, I'm, Any I'm plans? Not at the moment. No, I think I'm, I have, as we were saying, I have this huge bank of ideas. Um, I'm interested in World War Two, for example, now as a historic period that I haven't yet looked into. Um, so that may be coming next. And... There's so many people's lives and events I'm really fascinated by. So I think for now, history is the future. (laughs) And finally, finally, I was actually wondering, have you ever had any complaints from readers who said that you got something wrong in a historical context? Absolutely. All the time. Really? All the time. And it's it's always strange things. So, for example, with the girl who came home, I was obsessed about getting the layout of the Titanic right because there are people known as Titanoracs who are obsessive about this ship. Um, but it wasn't. It was things like, a, a, you know, a small scene where a certain flower would be growing in the spring and people, you know, somebody wrote to me to say that wouldn't actually have flowered at that time of year in that part of the world. Uh, you know, tiny, so smaller details, historic as details. As opposed to big facts. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it, you know, look, it, we all want people to read our books and it's lovely to hear from readers and you take a little bit away from everyone who writes to you. Yeah. Well, Hazel Gaynor, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find Hazel's latest novel, The Light housekeeper's daughter in your local bookshop now the next episode of inside books will be out soon just keep an eye on our twitter feed for details the handle is at inside books ire if you want to hear other episodes just search for us on soundcloud or itunes and don't forget to leave us a rating or review i'm brita brown until next time keep reading inside books is a unique media production 